Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today we discuss technical diagramming with systems architect Maya. Let's go. First question. You've spent 10 hours slogging over a sequence diagram that should have taken five. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board. And if I'm being honest, Miro would probably cut that time down by half. You know, with its AI tools and ready-to-go templates. Next, your diagrams become so bulky, it's more complex than the solar system. But all it takes is a few clicks and... It's Miro. I've used those technical shape packs way too many times, and stuff is just digestible on its infinite online canvas. Now, the final question. Everyone's brought in, but you have to make all these tasks all the way over in Jira. But wait, it's done. Is it... Miro, easy with its two-way Jira sync. Easy to plot dependencies. Everyone always knows what's up. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people creating technical diagrams without workflow glitches. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I mean, one of the things I try to do with the sustainability report is tying sustainability to the core metrics of sport, like fan engagement, like participation, like revenue generation, because I feel that's the only way we're going to get people at the top of sport in general terms to start thinking about sustainability as a, as a core business. Hello, and welcome to Our Impact. I'm your host, Jeremy Casebeer. This show explores what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can help scale positive outcomes and solutions. We'll be learning from people doing strong work across nonprofits, academia, business, and sport to connect the dots and find ways we can all take action. This show is as a result of my own searching. A few years ago, I measured my carbon footprint for the first time, and I realized how my travel as a professional beach volleyball player is actually at odds with the positive impact I'm striving to have. I wanted to act, but it wasn't clear where to begin. I've made a number of changes since then, but I'm still learning more every day. I hope you find these conversations useful and that the ideas we explore might help you take action in your own life and community. This episode is brought to you by Mir. The reason I partner with Mir is that they make beautiful products I enjoy using day to day and traveling, which helps them cut down on single use plastic. I can't tell you how nice it is to have their Thermo 3D vacuum insulated bottles keep my water ice cold the whole day when I'm at the beach training or competing. My favorites for the beach and travel are the 42 ounce wide mouth water bottle for hydration the 20 ounce travel tumbler for coffee, and the food canister that I pack my son's school lunches in. Aside from making awesome drinkware, they've earned B Corp, 1% for the planet, and climate neutral certifications, so you know they're taking transparent action to have a positive social and environmental impact. And if that was enough, every Mirror product sold helps fund nonprofit partners working at the intersection of communities and the environment. There's literally a giving code on every product, so you can look up Mirror's impact made possible by your support. Go to mirror.com and use Casebeer20 to receive 20% off your order. This episode is brought to you by Rise Brewing Co. Rise makes my favorite nitro cold brew coffee and provides energy for good people to do good things. If I'm at home, I start my day with Rise's original black nitro cold brew with their oat milk, or if I'm heading to the beach to train or surf, I'll take a mocha or vanilla latte with me. The best part is that Rise is 100% USDA certified organic. The oat milk Rise makes is tasty and impactful. Farming oats uses about six times less land than farming dairy and six times less water than farming almonds. I've been working to shift towards a plant-based diet, but I'm not perfect and it's definitely a process. Rise makes it easier for me because I can swap half and half for Rise's tasty plant-based oat milk and I'm supporting certified organic farmers, all while enjoying delicious nitro coffee. Head to Rise Brewing Co. and use Jeremy's C15 for 15% off your order and free shipping. My guest today is Matthew Campelli. Matthew is a strategist, communicator, and journalist specialized in sustainability and sport. He founded the Sustainability Report, which is the essential source of intelligence and insight for sports professionals committed to enhancing the environmental, social, and economic sustainability of their organizations. I've learned so much from Matthew's articles and podcasts over the years, and I really enjoyed this episode. In our conversation, we get into some really interesting topics like what is the value of sport to our society and environment? the opportunity pro sports has to compete on impact by incorporating purpose into the core of pro teams and leagues, 
the role athletes can play advocating for the causes that they care about, shifting fan behavior through game day experience and gamification, the importance of storytelling and narrative, and making the business case for sustainability and sports sponsorship. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Matthew Campelli, thank you for coming on. As we were just saying, I've been listening to your podcast and reading your articles for a number of years and got a lot out of it. So I'm really excited for a conversation today. Uh, Jeremy, I'm really honored that you invite me on the show. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. Ah, as am I. So can you just share a little bit about the sustainability report and how you got involved working with sustainability in sport? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess my kind of the origin of that goes back to my, I guess my original career, which was, which was in sport journalism. And around kind of 2015, 2016, I was editing uh, a, a sports magazine in the UK. And I started to get really disillusioned with how sport, with what sport was becoming. And I found myself writing about, you know, winning medals and sponsorship. And around the time of London, of the uh, Rio 2016 Olympics, it really kind of hit home because my, my home country, Great Britain, Team GB, had just beaten their medals records for London 2012. And everyone was celebrating. There was a really, a real moment of national pride. But I just remember thinking to myself, I mean, what, what is the end game here? What is this, what is it all for? And one of the things that many people in Britain didn't realize at the time is that the way that kind of Britain funds its sports is that it, it funnels a, a huge amount of money into specific sports to increase medal winning opportunities to the detriment of other sports. So there'd be other sports like badminton and I guess volleyball as well, which which Britain had no chance of winning any medals at, medals yeah. at which, re, which was receiving no funding. And I remember just thinking, this, this isn't what sport is for, not what sport is for. And around the same time, I had a son a few years earlier, and I was starting to get really interested in, in, in the environment and what the future was going to look like, not just for me, but for him and for his children as well, my, my grandchildren. And I guess at, you know, at that time, as I kind of came across people, and it was a, only a handful at the time, of people working in this intersection of environmental sustainability and sport. And I remember just having this, this, this light bulb moment. And I remember thinking that if anything is going to reignite my passion for sport, it's going to be something like this, using sport as a, as an accelerator, as you know, leveraging some really positive action with regards to climate. So then a year later, I started the sustainability report, which was focused on sustainable leadership, I guess, in sport and to try and really kind of push it forward. So. That's, that's how it will start, Jeremy. Very nice. And that's a, an idea too that keeps popping up in that, I guess, there's a lot of different stakeholders and perspectives in around sustainability and sport. You have the national governing bodies that kind of run the sport for their country going to Olympics. You have the professional leagues, the teams, the athletes, the fans. But when you incorporate sustainability and impact into sport, it's not just about winning championships and medals. Obviously, everyone wants to compete and earn that glory and build that legacy. But when you're competing on how many trees can you plant? How many children can you bring into the sport? How many schools can you help support? When you compete on impact and sustainability, it's a way to have that higher purpose, I guess. It's building purpose and impact into sport so that even if you lose a championship or don't even get there, you're still having a positive impact for the people who love your sport and for the community. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned purpose because I actually had this conversation during uh, the, the Green Sports Alliance Summit, which was which was just just last night, depending on when this episode is going out. Um, and one of the things I think is really interesting about sport is that we see now all these big organizations, big companies, will all have this kind of wider vision or mission statement. They'll all have something that, that their employees, a kind of north star that they're going to that they, that they want to follow. You know, something that is the real kind of intrinsic to their organization and. You don't find many sports teams, pro sports teams with that kind of purpose mission or vision mission. And, you know, like you said, Jeremy, very few teams win, like who wins, like one, one team, yeah. two teams every season. So if you're not fulfilling your primary purpose of winning the, winning the championship, you know, what, what is your organization for? And I think that's one thing that sport is going to have to really look at. And, you know, what is the purpose of my team? Uh, what's the purpose of our, of our club? And, um, that's going to be a really interesting conversation, I think, as, 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 as time goes on. Yeah. And that was one little light bulb went off in my head a couple of years ago. I was having a conversation with another player and we came to that realization. Every single volleyball tournament, there's one winner and everyone else loses. And sure, <laughs> some people aren't expecting to do well. So if they take a fifth place, they're happy with that. But in general, everyone's upset because there's one winner. So if that's the only metric for success and happiness, that's a... 
pretty poor metric. So incorporating <laughs> impact and sustain, sustainability in the sport really has a large opportunity to shift that. Your podcast, The Sustainability Report, has a recent mini-series that I've really enjoyed highlighting the bright, young, emerging sports executives and entrepreneurs known as the Young Sports Makers. Can you share a little bit about that mini-series and any themes or lessons that younger listeners or people starting to get interested in sports could take away from it? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. This all started because the Sustainability Report partnered with a, um, an event that happened in Paris uh, called Global Sports Week, which was a kind of, uh, it was a brand new event last year. The first, the inaugural event was in 2020 in February, just before COVID kind of hit Europe. So that, that was the last conference I went to in, a, in kind, of, kind of real life. And they wanted to do something different because every sports kind of conference, you'll have a kind of similar setup. You have a panel of guests, a moderator, They'll kind of cheer over some topics and everyone goes home and business as usual continues. And they kind of thought, well, we should get some other voices here. We should get some young voices, people who are not kind of encumbered by their organizational uh, uh, kind of strategies, people who will have, who can just kind of express opinions and ask questions completely liberated, yeah. which I thought was a great, was a great idea. So they did it last year and they were really a breath of fresh air. So, you know, they, they just asked really interesting questions. They really made. Uh, you know, these really kind of experienced professionals. But I really think, because I think a lot of the moderators, and I, and I was one of the moderators during, during the, the, the event last year, we kind, of, we kind of have the same kind of thought processes. And it's kind of a bit groupthink sometimes, you know. But then when you get these young voices, people from different countries, different nations, different cultures, different generations, they'll ask questions that you, wouldn't, you just won't even think about. Yeah. And they, um, they really made uh, people think. So they did the same for this year's uh, this year's event, which was a kind of hybrid event, mainly a virtual event. And they said, look, it'd be great if you could, as part of our partnership, you know, showcase some of our young sports makers. And they picked four guys from all over, all over the world. We had one girl from India, um, a girl from the US, a girl from Germany, who was actually in Japan, and a guy from France. And they all had different topics they wanted to kind of discuss. I think one, the girl in India was creating a... Um, she was creating a kind of social business in India, trying to get girls to play more sport because it's not really socially accepted there for girls to play sports, particularly sports like soccer, which was, which was her favorite sport. The guy in France, he was really interested in a couple of things, climate, how sport can impact climate, and also anti-doping as well and how we can make things safer and, and, uh, and, and cleaner for, for athletes. So I, I just jumped at the chance to speak to these guys because they were really, they, their, their view of sport and life in general is just... I wouldn't say so, so different to my generation. I'm kind of the generation above. I'm in, in my mid thirties now, but it's different to people that I know in my generation and people who are, who are slightly older. And they just got a quite, I would say a kind of a hopeful view on life without it being, um, without it being naive. Yeah. They're, op they're, they're optimistic, but they're also realists as well. And they know we have to be pragmatic and practical about achieving the optimistic ambitions they have. So it was, it was a really, really interesting set of podcasts yeah and that's one thing i'm beginning to notice too i'm also i think your same generation millennial i think mid all young to mid 30s and i think that's a good way of describing it it's optimistic but realistic and that's one thing that i've realized through these conversations is there's certain things that we have to do we have to eat we have to travel we have to produce things we have to heat and cooler buildings and that's where bulk of our emissions come from but i feel like the younger generation is like okay there's ways to do that that is has less of a detrimental environmental impact. And they just kind of realize that like the idea of buying an electric car to them and having solar panels and eating plant-based, that's like common sense to them. And I feel like that's kind of where that comes from. And I like that idea of rationally optimistic. You know, it's really interesting to see the next generation because I guess, because sometimes I feel like I'm in a little bit of a bubble because the young people I do speak to are kind of, they want the same views and then, and then they want to change sport for the better with regards to sustainability. But I guess at the same time, I know that a lot of young people are, are big consumers as well. They're still, they're still quite a big throwaway culture, I think, you know, with fast fashion and yeah. wanting everything now. So I think, I think there's this kind of blinkered view that, that we're going to be saved by Gen Z. And I think that we, we're going to kind of fall into a trap by, by thinking that, by thinking we can, you know, we can do what we like, Gen Z will save us. Yeah. Whereas I think millennials, guys of our generation and generations above us need to start putting our weight as well. We can't, we can't rely on Gen Z just because we, we see Greta Thunberg. We think the whole generation's like that. We have to, it has to be an intergenerational thing. I, yeah, hundred percent. So you've been writing your podcasts and articles for 
a uh, number of years. And one thing I'm really interested in is the storytelling around sustainability in general and specifically with sport, because I think most people would agree that sport is the great unifier. It's a way to bring people together from the left, from the right, from all different backgrounds. What are some takeaways that you've learned from all your writing and all your conversations on the podcast around storytelling? How can we leverage the power of sport that maybe hasn't been taken advantage of yet? Or where can we improve on the storytelling component? I think one of the ways that we can really improve is we've got to just, we've got to take the cliches out of it. We've got to, if, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone at a conference use the Nelson Mandela quote about sport, yeah. having the power to change the world, I'd be sitting here with a gold plated that uh, and microphone. doing well by doing good. Like what yeah. does, I mean, yes, I, under, I understand that it's kind of part of the lexicon, but when your average person hears that, it's just doesn't, it doesn't land. And, and, and don't, don't get me wrong. The Mandela quote is, oh, is of absolutely fundamentally correct. And I, and I totally subscribe to, to those views because for sport, it does have it. But I just feel that sometimes the sport is, it can be a little bit complacent because they kind of turn to that quote. They, they say the right the things sport. and the actions and transparency don't necessarily follow. Yeah. And, and just because of sport by its very nature, we'll just kind of work, you know, work it out rather than actually trying to do something um, a little bit outside of sports, use your, use your comfort zone. But, um, but I guess there's a couple of things that I've, that I've learned uh and some really interesting things and a lot of it is down to i mean you talk about you know the, the kind of left and the right and climate and environment can be quite a partisan kind of kind of debate and sport can be a great unifier but sport has to tell a story in, in quite a quite a specific way quite an uncliched way not a macro way you know when you start trying to engage fans and talking about things like climate change and these massive issues that i think it, i think in some ways, people can switch off because they, they feel powerless because it's just such a big issue. They feel they can't do it themselves. Whereas a lot of the, you know, when I interview people and I, I speak to people who do a lot of research, particularly the guys in the US, the, the sport of college group, right, right? I'm not sure you know. Yeah, Jimmy, I've, but they I do found a lot them of, through you. Yeah, I've talking, talked with Maddie or quite a number of times. It's a great group. Yeah, Maddie and Brian, they, they yeah. do some exceptional work. And um, a couple of studies that have come out of that group, uh, academics in that group have shown that, you know, if you, if you can find specific issues, environmental issues related to a particular town or, or, or a city where that particular team is, you can kind of galvanize people around that because it's, it's tangible, it's real. You know, if, if air quality is, a bad, is, is an issue in one particular place or you live by the coast and rising sea levels are affecting people and their businesses, you know, let's, let's focus on specifics rather than the big macro things. And that's what I think sport can, can get a lot better at. It's kind of sport by its very nature is very geographically geographically spread people are generally attached to their hometown team or the hometown athletes you know how can we harness that very local mentality the sport can have to address local issues which can affect the, the, the you know the wider kind of global discourse yeah yeah i feel like that is the key is making it tangible and when i talk to friends that aren't as knowledgeable or interested in sustainability too it's always that it's like okay what can i do how can i make my actions matter and sport is very local, but there is a, a thread that obviously runs globally with people playing all over the world. And if your local team loses, like I've been watching uh, Sunderland and I'm a little late to it. I know it's a couple of years old, the Netflix show and watching them get relegated and the entire city just rises and falls with their wins. And it affects, right. literally affects the local economy. You know, that, that's a really, that, that is a great series to watch that, that really showcases the impact sport can have for people. I mean, like you said, it just shows what impactful sport can be on, on local communities. And yeah, anyone who's listening to this, I advise to, to watch that documentary because it's just, uh, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. How would you grade the sports industry in terms of sustainability and impact today? Uh, where, are we, where are we doing well and where can we improve? Well, I guess as an industry, as, as, a, as a general industry, I think that sport is probably some way behind other industries in, in terms of kind of just, just kind of sustainability norms, such as, you know, creating strategies, reporting uh, environmental uh, impacts, sustainability reporting, uh, doing the kind of, um, do, doing the work that needs to be done to, to kind of see where you are, you know, getting your environmental benchmark and finding where you can improve. I think sport in general is, is a little way behind, but there are some obvious, some organizations who are, who are, who are, who are doing some really great work, you know, sports like Formula E, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, who, whose raison d'etre is around uh, 
encouraging people to buy electric vehicles and getting people interested in that. But aside from their kind of why the purpose, they do a lot of good things around measuring and reducing their scope one, two, and three emissions and looking at things like air quality. I think generally, I think sport is, is difficult as an industry because I suppose when you look at other industries like the automotive industry and the retail industry, you can, you can very easily compare companies based on size, I guess, and looking at their environmental impact and what they're doing to reduce that. Whereas sport is a very fragmented industry because you have different sports. They'll be of different sizes. They'll be privately owned or publicly owned. They'll be, you know, uh, uh, NGBs and international federations, or they'll be huge, you know, sports, you know, teams and clubs like the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Yankees yeah, and Manchester exactly. United Football Club. So, you know, I think I think the one place sport is finding it really difficult is finding that that benchmark and finding out how you can compare and what kind of industry standard is. And that's where sport could get a little better, but it's that's not without its challenges. It's not without its challenges. And you touched on already the organizational structure and whether we're talking about leagues, teams, which teams and leagues within that structure will determine where these bottlenecks are, but what are the big hurdles or bottlenecks that you've seen in shifting the way that people do business, whether that's just a mental shift where they're open to the possibility of it, or whether it's bureaucratic or financial barriers that are preventing a larger shift towards sustainable business and sport? I think it comes, I think it's a question of governance yeah. mainly. And I think that generally sport is quite a short-term uh, short-term thinking uh, industry. We're always thinking about the next event, you know, kind of four-year cycles. And I suppose, I suppose one of the main bottlenecks is that I don't, and, and I don't think this, I think this is not just true. I don't think it's just sport. I think it's true of many industries and many organizations where I think the link between environmental degradation and the health of the business, there's a disconnect there, but it should be a huge connect because if climate change accelerates to the rate that, scientists think it will if the environment degrades to the extent that the, the science says it will then we're going to be looking at a fundamentally different sports industry in the next five to ten years no matter what sport you're playing you could be playing indoor sport outdoor sport i don't think sport is quite generally understood that and they then even even some sports and organizations that are doing work around sustainability like measuring their carbon emissions and trying to reduce them it still feels like it's a little bit siloed yeah. there'll be people working in sport generally who who will not be sustainability professionals. There are, I've come across very, very few sustainability professionals working in sport. The sustainability brief is generally handed to people working in marketing, for example, or communications, basically. Yeah. And, or, it, or for fo football clubs, it will be the foundation, uh, not the actual football team, but they'll have their philanthropic yeah. foundation that will look after that. Will look after that. And I think if sport is going to go anywhere, they're going to have to internalize sustainability a lot more and really see that, I mean, I don't like using the, the term business case because I think we should protect the environment as a matter of course anyway, even if it costs us money. But um, to see, to really see that, you know, if if we don't make you know massive substantial changes, then the sport that we govern, the sport that we love and we play, is going to be drastically different, and that will make it difficult for us to generate revenue. It'll make it difficult to encourage participation for people to start playing sport. The real key metrics that sport is currently looking at. So, I mean, one of the things that I try to do with a sustainability report is tying sustainability to the core metrics of sport, like fan engagement, like participation, like revenue generation, because I feel that's the only way we're going to get people at the top of sport in general terms to start thinking about sustainability as a, as a core business, uh, a core business um, operation. Yeah. And you had a great episode uh, a little while back on the actual measurement and the data around these. And there's some organizations, Reciproc and Zoomf, that are teaming up and helping to actually measure. Because if you go to a CEO of a team or a league and you say, look, these athletes are posting about the environment or social causes and their engagement is X percent better, 20% better. Or when we adopt these practices, we can, these practices within our facilities at the stadium, we can save this much money and we can also shift our messaging. And it also brings in larger sponsors. If you have that data and it's just clear black and white on paper, that decision becomes much easier versus you're trying to pitch, uh, you know, management on, we should do this because this is the right thing to do. You know, that's not how businesses are run, unfortunately. So you have to have that business case, like you said, even if it kind of flies in the face of it should be done just intrinsically because it is the right thing to do and because we have to do it. I, I think one of the, well, I think one of the difficulties is, is that, and maybe this isn't so true now, but it was certainly a couple of years ago. So I, I was at a conference about 
two, three years ago. And on the, on the stage, they had some really big franchises and teams and leagues. And all of them had done um, some really good stuff around sustainability. It's really interesting, some of the work they've been doing. And uh, the moderator, you know, went through each of the, each of the panelists and said, so what's, what's, your, what's your key motivation for doing this? And every single one of them to a person said, because it's the right thing to do, which is great because it's great that it's the right thing to do. But obviously there's some kind of business imperative there, but they, for some reason, they were reluctant to talk about the business imperative. And I feel that, and I feel that it's strange that when, and, this, and again, this is, this is true generally, not just around sport, but it, I guess it, it seems, if I think for some, it feels quite dirty to be seen to be making money and be making good business around something that's inherently good around sustainability. Right. If, 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 if doing something sustainable, uh, so it, it feels like if you do really bad stuff. Yeah, and you make making money, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, fantastic. you can be really overt about it. Yeah, yeah. But if you do good stuff, you can't be seen to be making a profit out of it, which I think is a really, that's a, a, such a terrible paradox. It is a, it is a, it's a terrible paradox. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's changing now. I think that people are more willing to talk about the business case in, in, for sustainability and sport, but that wasn't the case a few years ago. And I think that really put things back a little bit. Because if, if, if people come to a conference wanting to learn about why this is important, if they're not environmentalists, they don't want to hear this is the right thing to do because it will just go in one ear and out the other. They won't, they, won't, um, they won't take up the call to action. This episode is brought to you by Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab is a certified B Corp, makes high-performance skincare by combining pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's most potent ingredients. Finally, a skincare routine that uses non-toxic, sustainable ingredients and actually works. In high school, I got a nasty sunburn that literally burnt the pigment out of my skin and left me with a surprisingly symmetrical two-tone mustache that led to my nickname, the Lorax. I've been playing beach volleyball professionally for over a decade, using sunscreen every day, and have spent more time in the sun than I care to think about. I can't tell you how damn happy I am to have a simple and effective daily routine to leave my skin feeling healthy and help offset all the exposure and damage that can come with playing beach volleyball. I use their three-product regimen daily. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser I use in the shower. The base layer is a light moisturizer I use every morning. And The Good is an antioxidant-packed face serum I put on before bed every night. The regimen is backed by a clinical trial with real people and 100% participants reported healthier-looking skin. So I'm not alone when I say this stuff actually works. I love Caldera Lab's mission and products, so I want to share a special discount of 20% off for our impact listeners. Go to calderalab.com slash casebeer or use the discount code casebeer at checkout. That's C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A-B.com slash Casebeer. We spoke a little bit about the young sports makers at the top of the show, and we just spoke a little bit about the bottlenecks and kind of the hurdles that uh, the sports industry faces. Where, what are the catalysts? What's moving things forward? Where are you feeling optimistic? What trends are you seeing? I'm feeling optimistic. I think some of the key catalysts, we talked about organizationally have, have things happening in sport, but what I'm really encouraged about is that there are a lot of people, individuals working in sport who are really, really pushing things forward. Individual people who are so passionate about the sport and the environment and really, really pushing things on. And, and, and they've been the real catalysts behind, uh, behind pushing things forward. Um, I think it's just about how sport operationalizes their enthusiasm and, and their knowledge. I guess the other thing that I think is really kind of interesting is, and this comes back to some of the things that I learned at the Green Sports Alliance Summit, which has just gone in it. And it was talking about how sport really stepped up to the plate, particularly in the US with many things. So for example, stadiums becoming mass vaccination centers, yes. voting, places to vote, you know, yeah. really looking at a kind of social justice aspect. I think that we've, we've, we've traditionally looked at stadiums and sports venues, particularly the ones that are built for big events like the Olympics and the World Cups as kind of white elephants. They're used for a specific period of time and then they just lie dormant for a, right, forever. Yeah, exactly. For the a, field a in Rio that was built in the middle of the jungle and then, or excuse me, in Brazil that was built in the middle of the jungle and then used once or twice and just sitting there. It's now derelict. Okay, yeah. yeah. Now derelict. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. But but now, but, but I, I've got, I, I feel that it, the stadiums that have been built that are already there that we can't really do anything about, they can kind of become catalysts for, for sustainable development. There was some really, I've, I've seen some really interesting cases of how stadiums are being used as kind of smart city test beds. You know, you can testing out smart technologies and renewable energy and, you know, giving startups an opportunity to test things that are kind of 
a small scale, but a, but a representative scale and pushing that technology out to, to cities. So I think sport can have a real role in, in kind of accelerating the, the low carbon transition in that respect. So yeah, I think sport, apart from its voice, has got some real kind of key assets in, in, in moving things forward. And I think venues and stadiums could, could be one if, if it's harnessed correctly. Yeah. And you mentioned some of those shifts at venues are small scale in the grand scheme of things, but also representative. And when you get 20, 30, 50, 60,000 people coming to your stadium weekly and you make one small change and people start noticing, oh, that's weird. They got rid of plastic cups. Now they have aluminum or, oh, look at those charging stations. That can be very visible. And that's another thing. Every time I have these conversations with people, I always like my wrap up question is like, all right, if we, if in beach volleyball, if I could affect a handful of people to make some change, what is the most impactful change? And one of the answers that I really like, which may not have the direct data behind it, but is a shift in people's thinking. If you can get a shift in people, the way people think, they're like, wonder if I should use this cup or that cup. Where does that go? Can I recycle that? Can that be upcycled? And just that little shift in people's thinking, which can happen so organically at in a sports environment at a sports stadium when fans are going through, I think that can be surprisingly effective in shifting the way behaviors and thought patterns happen. And it's not forceful or it can be done in a natural way. Sure. I think there's a lot about, uh, there's, there's a lot around gamification as well, which is yeah. really interesting and, and using sustainability to enhance the match day experience rather than feel like a bit of, you know, I, I must recycle this. I must yeah. get, like making it part of the, the fun. Basically, I think generally people will look at sustainability and, and they, they kind of see the things that are being taken away from them. Yes. If they have to live a sustainable life. Whereas I think we should kind of reframe that as ways that they can live you know, things life. that they're gaining and for, for a better life, yeah. they can. They don't have to change it. They don't have to lose things. It's just to shift a little bit and they can still enjoy life. And I think sport can, can kind of harness this with gamification, like you said, making it, making it fun, part of the, part of a really good experience. So selfish question here. Like I said, you've been speaking to people, a wide variety of people working in the sports and sustainability world. And I've personally been trying to connect the dots in ways that I can have an impact with my own platform in sport. I've recently, I have a project that I'm going to be sharing, hopefully in the next few weeks, working with AVP Pro Tour around sustainability and climate action, working as ambassador for Parlay for the Oceans and for Stewardship Council and work, trying to work with sponsors and partners that have third-party certifications. They're working towards increasing their social and community impact and decreasing their environmental impact. What are the best examples of athletes using their platform for positive impact and where can we continue to make improvement. It's a, it's a daunting task as an athlete to speak out on climate change. It's a very complicated, large, divisive, politically charged topic, but it's becoming more and more common. What are some of the best examples you're seeing and where, how can we help athletes and how can we make it more common? You know, th this is really tummy because the latest edition of the sustainability report cut report podcast i interviewed two athletes uh one called melissa wilson who's a rower for uh a rower for team gb and she's also part of the group the champions for earth group which you might may have heard of uh, jeremy which is a kind of mainly a uk-based band of athletes who are trying to make yeah. some change with regards to, yeah. to policy and environmental policy in britain and the other athlete was a, a, a professional football player professional soccer player called morton thorsby a norwegian guy who plays this football in italian league syria had a great season last last season by the way did really really well and that his team did really well and it's interesting one of the things that we talked about mainly is moving from this whole kind of harnessing the athlete voice which of course is really important because athletes obviously have a huge profile and a huge platform but kind of moving that and and, and focusing on athlete action and what athletes can actually do because i, I feel that the in the sports we feel that the athletes can they put their head above the parapet and say things and and, and try and, and try and make change with their platform is it's obviously really good, but for what you're saying, you know, you're, you're working within your sport and you're trying to do something, making change. I think athletes have got such a, such a wonderful skill set in terms of the grit and determination they have to, to really achieve stuff in their sport, their adaptability, their teamwork skills. They've really built up this kind of, this incredible skill set that, that can be, that can be kind of used in any kind of capacity, really, any kind of role that, 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 that athlete skill set is really, 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 really crucial. And I feel that sport in general could really do more to encourage athletes to not just use their voice, but to just to do stuff, 
to say, okay, guys, you know, we, we need to do stuff about our operational emissions and do stuff about what we're doing with sustainability. Let's get a couple of our key athletes who are really interested in this to, to do some, to, to, to work with us to make our sport more, more sustainable. I mean, there's some really interesting, really interesting kind of stories. And Morton, who lives in lives in Italy now, he's been speaking to government officials in Italy and in his home country of Norway to talk about policy and how they can kind of work together to to kind of to put policy in the you know in the living rooms of normal people through the medium of of soccer, which in Italy is like yeah. a religion basically. Everyone, <laughs> exactly. watches, everyone watches soccer. It's back, and we do it in a really authentic way. And I think that's the kind of next stage for athletes. And 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 I guess this kind of when you talk about climate change being a bit of a political hot potato, yeah. particularly in the US, can be difficult for athletes to speak up about it. There's always a danger of being labeled a hypocrite because sure. you're flying around. A lot of particularly soccer players and maybe you know big players playing in the big American leagues like American football and, and basketball and, and baseball will live lavish lifestyles to some extent. They'll have you know, nice cars and nice houses. And there's a danger they may be kind of labeled a hypocrite but if they actually take some actions as well as using their voice to show that they're actually trying to you know do the do the right thing buying an electric car for example i mean there's no reason why you can't buy a tesla instead of a ferrari right sure. they're still they're still, they're, they're still kind of yeah it's fast yeah easy yeah exactly yeah yeah so yeah i think it's about action um but i feel that athletes do need some support they need some support from us from from sport to, to let them to, to make to, to let them know that speaking about environment and other societal issues and, and environmental issues can be a safe space for them to know that if there is going to be pushback because there will be pushback yeah because there there's, there's, there's always, always going to be, be, that yeah, be some critics that, that as, a, as as the sport we've got your back and I guess another kind of interesting thread about that is is a lot of these a lot of these guys who make it to professional soccer and professional baseball and basketball come from pretty deprived backgrounds. A lot of these guys will come from working class backgrounds. And, you know, once they're making kind of, you know, big money, consumption just comes natural to these guys. Sure. Because guys and girls, they've been working, because their whole life that. They've been working their whole life and then they've grown up in such deprivation. They want to buy their mothers and fathers and their cousins. And they, they want to give them a good life. And I guess... As a, as a society, we need to drastically lower our consumption and stop worrying about buying things. But I, th I think it's, I think we have to find a line between being really super critical of these young people who have really worked hard to get where they are. And rather than criticize and point fingers, just to educate and sympathize, and empathize and kind of work from that angle. Yeah. And just on that, that thread as well, I was listening to a How to Save a Planet podcast and they crunch the numbers of the average, I believe it was the average American's carbon footprint in comparison to the global emissions each year. And obviously an average American is higher than your average global citizen. And it was something like 0. 0.000 with nine zeros of the average global emissions. So in reality, one person's carbon footprint isn't massive, but when you, and that was the idea of collective action, when you start to shift people, once one person flies less or offsets their carbon footprint, that affects the people around them, their friends and family start to shift. So although a professional football player may live a lavish lifestyle, may travel a lot and have a significantly larger carbon footprint than the average person, if they were to take actions to reduce that or offset it and then share that with their fan base, share that with their teammates, share that within the sport, and that started to become a norm, even though they may have a, a larger carbon footprint, that shift through their platform and through their network and through their reach could have a massive impact, significantly larger than if they were somehow able to zero out their carbon footprint. So I think that's also part of the opportunity for athletes to take action, take transparent action, and also share that through their social platform and start adopting these best practices that, like you said, it's not about living a worse life or you can and can't do this. It's about kind of common sense things that you can take small steps over time and start making improvement because the reach of support is just massive and still re relatively untapped. So we already touched on this a little bit, but would love to hear you riff if you have any further thoughts. What is everyone's role in this? How can the fan, the athlete, the employee at a team or league, or even sponsors get involved? And we haven't touched on sponsors as much. And obviously it's also the kind of dirty part of sports. People don't like to talk about the the money component, but I think it was the CEO of Coke. I read an article a while back who talked about basically the role of sponsorship in sport. 
without sponsorship, without Coke, who sponsored every Olympics <laughs> for who knows how long, basically professional sports wouldn't exist. So if you could riff a little bit on the role of fans, athletes, employees, teams, and then also sponsors as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sponsors is interesting because sponsors have, they're probably the biggest influence on sport. Yeah. You know, fans and sponsors. But when, it's, when, we, when we talk about money, it'll be sports generally gets its money from sponsorship and from TV revenue. And sponsors, we're finding, I think more and more, we're finding that sponsors are kind of asking sport to do a little bit around sustainability because a lot of big brands will, to some extent, be doing things around sustainability. There'll be sustainability reporting, they'll have strategies in place. They'll be talking the language of the sustainable development goals. Now, whether they're actually doing things in practice is, is a whole different story. Uh, that'll probably vary from company to company. But the fact remains is that they'll all be publishing an annual sustainability report. They'll be talking the language of sustainability. And more and more, they'll be, they'll be expecting sport to, to do the same. I've, I've had a couple of occasions where some sponsors have encouraged uh, a sports a sports entity, a sports uh, organization to start disclosing their environmental footprint, particularly the carbon emissions. And sport needs to be prepared for this because although this isn't commonplace now, it could very well be commonplace in the, in the future. And if sport isn't prepared to talk about this and, and it's out of its comfort zone a little bit, then it's going to be a little bit awkward and a little bit embarrassing for sport. So I think sport again needs to internalize things so that they can speak to sponsors in, in, in quite a competent way about sustainability. So that's the risk element is that you may potentially lose sponsors or at least your relationship will be diminished a little bit if you're not doing similar things to them on the sustainability front. I suppose the second part of that, that coin is, is that there's huge opportunities, I believe, for sport to engage new sponsors. We're seeing kind of small footsteps of, of brands who are not traditionally involved in sports sponsorship start to get involved with some sports properties because because of their environmental and, and their purpose, and not, not, not necessarily around the sport. I mean, a good example of this is Sail GP, which is the fledgling, you know, boat racing competition. I think it just started its second series a little while ago. In its first series, it, it, it partnered with Tesla, which, is, which now is the most valuable car company in the world. I mean, what sport, sport would not want to be aligned with Tesla? I mean, it's a huge, <laughs> huge brand. It's, it's, it's incredible. So we're seeing a fledgling sport, which has really put purpose at the heart of it. I think CLGP's purpose, that is, that is one sport that's got a purpose, a, a vision statement. I think their vision statement is to kind of heart, is to harness renewable energy through sport or to encourage people to use renewable energy in, in companies. So, so there is an opportunity to, to kind of engage sponsors and partners who have not traditionally put money into sport because of what you're doing purpose-wise. And if it aligns with their purpose as well, they may want to align with you. So sponsors is very key, is a very key conversation. Fans as well is, is I guess it's on a, in a similar vein, is that in many ways fans or normal consumers, everyday people, they're the guys that are driving brands to become more sustainable. Yeah. Because people more generally uh, are not wanting to use plastic. They're wanting to know that the brands that they are spending money with are doing things responsibly, not just environmentally, but human, human rights-wise as well. And sport can, sport can learn a lot from that because I feel that, and I've said this in, in many interviews, but I, I feel that sport's biggest, its biggest strength can be its biggest weakness when it comes to sustainability. Because if I want to go and buy a consumer product like a, a shirt or a pair of jeans, I can very easily make a dispassionate decision that I'm going to purchase a pair of jeans sure. from a company that Look is doing corp 1% climate neutral, the right third-party certifications. Exactly. Exactly. And that pair of jeans will look as good on me and feel as comfortable as a Levi pair of jeans or a pair of jeans from a different company. But if my soccer team that I've been following since I was a child that my father follows and his father followed as well, like kind of a third generation fan is throwing toxic waste into the, into yeah. the sea, which I guess is kind of a, a kind of hyperbolic example, but you know, I'd be disgusted and I'd write to them and I'd probably boycott in some way, but those, those, those emotional feelings couldn't be detached hundred percent really. Yeah. And I think sport can be a little bit complacent with that because, because as consumers, we're probably not forcing sport to do as much as consumer products. Indirectly though, we're forcing consumer products, consumer brands to, to become more sustainable, become more responsible. And these are the guys who are sponsoring sport. So indirectly, fan and consumer behaviors will impact sport somewhere along the, along the stream. Yeah. Just on that thread, not to get too wonky too fast, but I've had on Andy Fife from B-Lab and Peter Daring, who founded Climate Neutral and Personally, I geek out on third-party certifications because 
that's how you know people are taking transparent action. You have a nonprofit that has no incentives other than verifying that people are doing what they say they're going to do. What are some of the third-party certifications within sport that you're finding are in demand, both from fans, sponsors, and that sports properties, leagues, teams, and ownership are pursuing that are valuable to them? Which ones are returning ROI? Hmm, that's a difficult question. I, I suppose the, the one that is most related to sport would be the ISO 2012-1 standards, which is more around kind of sport events. And that, that's really useful to sport because that's kind of like a guidebook to running a sustainable sports event. So it tells you what you need to do to, to run an event, whether it's like a, a two or three week World Cup or like a, a game day event yeah. in your stadium. And that's really useful from the operational point of view. In terms of other certification, like B Corp certification, I mean, I can't think of any sports teams that have gone through B Corp certification. And I'm not sure that any, I can't think of anyone that is, that is currently going through B Corp certification. And I'm just, I'm just not sure that certification is something that sport has ever really thought of. And in many ways, I don't think it's been pressured by fans in the same way consumers will pressure other kind of consumer products to kind of produce this certification. I suppose climate neutrality would be something that most people can understand, sports fans and, and, and fans can understand. But I guess it's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a whole kind of worms in itself because you can reduce as much as possible, but the very nature of sport is that you'd have to offset at some point. Yeah. You'd have to offset your carbon emissions because people will be traveling. You'll be using some degree of energy unless you're hundred percent renewable, which is very, yeah, very rare in sport. Difficult. <laughs> and then, you know, where are you getting your carbon offsets from and how are they being certified? And I think that's quite a murky one. It's a very difficult one for consumers, even out of sport to actually see who's doing genuinely, who's doing genuinely good work, who's actually reducing their emissions and just offsetting the really unavoidable yeah. stuff or who is just, who's just buying offsets just to, just to say they're carbon neutral without really going through the, through the deep work. I'm not really seeing from sports key stakeholders that they're looking for certification in that respect. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the key catalyst would be with that. Maybe with sponsors looking at climate neutrality, but I'm not. I'm not really seeing this yet. No, it's interesting. I, the impact of sports. If you're thinking large sports team, Lakers or English football, it's not as prevalent. When people think of Coca-Cola, it's very obvious that they have a massive footprint. They draw billions of gallons of water from the areas where they operate, and they have produced billions of plastic bottles. But sports. Obviously they have massive stadiums, but it's just not as clear what those impacts are. And there isn't that transparency up front. Yeah. I guess there are the lead certifications for the buildings and that's becoming more prevalent, but yeah, the rest of it isn't as front of house, I guess. Yeah. A lot of it is very operational, like, like the lead certification for, for the stadiums. But I think one, one framework that could be really interesting for sport to look at will be the UN Global Compact. And there are a few parts of that, 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 of that framework that are really applicable to sport. So a lot of it is around looking at suppliers because sport in itself doesn't really produce the negative environmental impacts that, you know, kind of manufacturers or, you know, would, would produce, but looking at your suppliers, who's producing the kit, who's producing the stuff that you're selling your merchandise, you know, are they employing good environmental practices? Are they employing good human rights practices? Yeah. What's your governance like? So that, that could be a really good model for sport to, to, to look at. Uh, probably the most applicable one, I think, in terms of human rights, environment, and governance. Yeah. Now I'm going to be looking closely for the first B Corp certified uh, professional sports league or team. If you find it before me, you got to let me know, Jeremy. Because... Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do a joint <laughs> podcast with them. Yeah. Uh, so when I, basically a big part of my climate journey was going back to school at UCLA and measuring my carbon footprint for the first time. And then I knew the basics of carbon footprint. I knew that flying is the one of the most carbon intensive things you can do. And I was blown away that I had let my mind trick myself and think that I was living a quote, air quotes, sustainable life. And ever since then, I've been trying to figure out basically three questions individually. And that's where this podcast came from. What is my impact? What can I do about it? And how can I help scale positive outcomes and solutions? And that's the focus of this podcast. What is our impact? What can we do about it? And how can we scale positive outcomes and solutions? What questions are you asking yourself consistently through these conversations you're having through your work? What questions are you most focused on day to day? You know, I suppose the question that I'm, that I'm really focused on, which is kind of more general, a macro one that I'm, that I can't figure out myself, 
but I, but I think it's a, it's a question that we need to figure out as a, as a, as a, as a humanity, as a people is how do we stay within the very finite boundaries of the planet, but also raise people's social standard of living. This is directly related to sport, but this is, this is the thing that I guess keeps me awake at night. It's how, how do we lift these millions of people out of poverty and at the same time, stay within the kind of the finite yeah. systems that we have on the planet. And I guess that really worries me because I don't see a really clear way forward. Like, you, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Jeremy, about the, the carbon footprint of your average American. And I guess your average European will have a very similar, perhaps uh, maybe slightly less, because I don't think we drive as intensively as the US yeah. just by virtue of our better transportation. Smaller, better transportation, but I think it won't be far off. But you know, how, how, how do we reduce our collective Western footprint to the extent that we can raise the standard of living for people living in poorer countries without our planet collapsing. And I guess that's also something that I can address with the sustainability report or sport can address by itself. But I wonder how sport could play a role in that whole conversation around improving social standards, but also making sure our environment is still, is still healthy and safe. Uh, I think. So I've gotten a lot out of Project Drawdown and from Catherine Hale, I saw her speak at a conference and I've referenced this before in the podcast and I'm going to probably go ahead and keep referencing it because it's so uh, <laughs> important. But she said that 97% of climate communications focus on gloom and doom, the causes and effects, and only 3% focus on the solutions. So as we were talking earlier about the potential role of athletes in this, sure, you can make individual changes in your daily life, which is obviously important. But I think the power of sport and the opportunity for sport is to share those solutions, to share about regenerative agriculture or shifting to a lower carbon economy. Or if, <laughs> if every athlete started driving electric cars or Teslas, you know, that would really, it would be obvious. Millions of people would be aware of that. So, and that kind of goes into a question that I'm personally very curious about and would love to hear your thoughts on and we've been talking about this but how do you see the connection between individual actions collective or community action and getting towards systemic change how can we use sport and athletes to shift our habits and the way things are done for the better i'm not sure using athletes is the is the right time i think i think it's i think it has to when it comes to sport i think it's got to be collective i think it has to be collective and i think we have to kind of kind of hit people from from all sides really i think the athlete voice has to be there and yeah, and what you said was very, is, is, really, is really crucial, like this whole message of hope. And I think the athlete voiceness has to be a message of hope because if, it, if it's a message of doom, you'll have the whole hypocrisy debate come out again. Yeah. People will switch off. And it's been a really, I mean, the one thing that I found a little bit disconcerting recently is the fact that we talk about the fact that people zone out from politicians, people zone out from scientists, but they listen to athletes. But increasingly, I'm not sure that is 100% the case anymore, which, which worries me. Just to give you an example. Uh, in Europe, they're playing big football tournament, big soccer tournament, 2020 European Championships. The no uh, guys in, in the US are following it. They're probably, probably following the Copa America, which is happening <laughs> at the same time as well. But um, the English football team is a very multi multicultural football team. A lot, of, uh, a lot of players who come from Caribbean backgrounds, African backgrounds, who are English guys, but their parents and grandparents are from different parts of the Commonwealth. And they've become quite vocal in, in the Black Lives Matter movement as well, been taking the knee as Colin Kaepernick. And they found themselves being booed by their own fans. So oh. English football fans are coming, are coming to the stadium. These guys are taking the knee for seven or eight seconds, no more than that. And they're being booed by their own fans. And the kind of excuse that you hear for a broad section of these fans is the fact that this is a Marxist movement. This is political. And you've got to keep political out of sports. But in actual fact, I don't think that the political debate has got anything to do with it. My personal opinion is that the, the broad section of it is racist. Yeah, um, likewise. A lot of these guys don't see these, uh, these young black men as equal to them. And I'm concerned that now... The athletes, uh, when, they, when, they, when they do try and make a stand, whether it's environmental or social or racial or to do with justice, that if it's not quite uh, in line with the, the kind of, if it's not aligned with the opinions of some of the fans, then that, that, then that voice is going to be drowned out. Just as scientists' voice have been drowned out, just as politicians' voices have been drowned out. And it's very difficult. And I think that athletes will have to find a way 
to communicate, to make, to make whatever they're saying as non-partisan as possible. And although it pains me to say, I don't think that the, the, the messages should be watered down. I think that these messages of justice, environmental and social justice should be shouted from the rooftop. That's, that's my opinion. But we're talking about getting people on side here who are not naturally affinity, who've got not, not got natural affinity with these topics. So I think there's a lot to be said for athlete kind of education and engagement to get them talking about these topics, but to get them talking about it in a very competent, yeah. in a very non-threatening, in a very positive and action oriented way to try and convert some of these people. Some people are non-convertible yeah. and we have to accept that, but there'll be people on the fence that can be converted. And it's just about getting a message across to them, whether it's an athlete talking, a scientist talking, a politician talking, we have to find ways that really resonate with them communication wise. Yeah. And I'm impressed that we made it through this conversation so far without saying shut up and dribble, but that's basically the, one of the <laughs> biggest critiques of whether it's social environmental is people, fans want to go to sporting events to escape and enjoy. And that's a fine line to walk, to share these causes that athletes are passionate about and do it in a way that resonates with the fans that doesn't have the fans tune out. So yeah. that is, I mean, I guess, I guess to what extent everything is political, but at the same time, if you look at racial justice and environmental justice, these, 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 are, these are not political issues. No. These, this is just human decency. It's exactly. looking after our environment and treating everyone. I mean, these, these young footballers and, and people, guys like Colin Kaepernick who have worked so hard to reach it to the pinnacle, the pinnacle of their sport. Yeah. And there are a section of people who, who don't even, who don't see them on the same, on, on the same level as them, just just because of the color of their skin or, or where they originate from or where they come from. Yeah. And that for me is not a political statement. That's just an issue of human decency. A hundred percent. Before we get into our quick hitters and wrap up, uh, what are one or two ideas that you think listeners should take away from our conversation today about sustainability in sport and where we're headed? Um, it depends where the listeners are coming from. I, I guess if you're a fan of sport and you go and watch sport regularly, if you see that your sports organization or your team, once you get back into the stadium, if, you, if you're not allowed back in yet, if you see them doing something around sustainability, try and get involved. Yeah. Even if it, even, even, even if it's not great, or if it's a prototype, or if it's not, if it's not, you know, try and get involved and give feedback and tell them what you'd like to see, you know, put pressure on them in a very kind of positive and authentic way and tell, and tell your sports team that you'd like to see um, them do more things around sustainability. Yeah. That, that would be my, that would be my kind of, that's, from a fan point of view. That's spot on. Yeah. If management is taking the pains to shift their behavior and invest in newer, more sustainable, impactful strategies, and they get positive feedback consistently from fans, that's a very, very fast way to accelerate and bring about more change. And if you find that one of your favorite athletes or even an athlete from, a, from an opposing team yeah. is, is raising their voice around social justice or environmental justice, retweet them, send them a message of support, you know, because they're going to get so much vitriol from, from, from naysayers, just, just give them, give them, send them a positive message, retweet them, like them, just uh, make, make them feel that their voice is as safe as possible, that, 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 that what they're saying is, is, is a safer space as possible. That, that is another really impactful thing that you can do. All right. Time for the quick hitters. What is your go-to spot to get into nature? I live in Southern Austria. I live right on the Alps. And oh. the sun has come out recently. You're in nature all day, every day. Gosh. I am in, na <laughs> I am in nature all day, every day. I live by one of the biggest rivers in Austria. So I wake up to that and I, I, I take my dog for a walk every day past that river. But we have some of the most beautiful freshwater lakes in the whole of Europe. Yeah. And I'm spending quite a lot of my time by these lakes now. Um, just enjoying nature. Just seeing how beautiful and pure and clear the water is. Swimming in it with my son. Uh, looking at the, the mountains in the distance. And... Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to be out of nature here. So I enjoy it. I enjoy it very often. Very nice. Where do you get your information? Are there any magazines, websites, authors you read regularly, podcasts or newsletters you subscribe to? Yeah, an author I really like is Justin Warland from Time Magazine. I was honored because a couple of days ago, I went to watch the Ocean Race uh, Europe's Summit, um, where they kind of get policymakers, people who are really we were really involved in, in kind of the ocean protection space to kind of talk around uh, some of the key issues and how we can move forward. Justin was actually there talking about some of the articles that he'd written around the, the kind of the, the climate justice side of the you know, environment, how what we're doing in the global north is really massively impacting the global south. People who have 
lived in harmony with nature their whole lives for generations and now being impacted dram dramatically because of actions that, that are taken thousands of miles away. So yeah, really fantastic uh, uh, writer to follow. I'm also a big fan of the um, Outrage Plus Optimism podcast yes. for Christina yes. Figueres, which is really amazing, which gets the tone absolutely bang on. Yeah. There's humor in there. There is obviously the serious stuff, but you always leave thinking that we can, that we can make a, a positive, we can make a positive difference. Really, really good. And more mainstream, I think uh, The Guardian, which is my go-to newspaper, is really taking environmental issues really seriously. Every day, one of their top stories will be around environment, climate change. They've, they've changed the whole vernacular around climate change, talking about climate crisis, global heating. So they're really pushing, uh, pushing things, things forward from a mainstream news point of view as well. Is there a book you'd recommend to someone just starting to get curious about impact? Yeah, one of my favorite books is called Donut Economics. And this is, which, which goes to the point I made earlier, and it's about this, this whole kind of looking at planetary boundaries and social issues and finding that little ring in between the donut of where we can accommodate everyone's life and give everyone a comfortable and happy life, but also live within, within our means. And it's a great way to look at how we can attack our future challenges. Because, I mean, I don't know who said it, but that, 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 that um, that famous phrase, I think it's from an American presidential uh, rally, it's, it's the economy stupid, right? Everyone, yeah. it's all about economics. But the way economics are being taught to university students now is economics from the 1950s, from, from the 1930s. This is about a new, a new approach to economics, which takes into account everything, the environment, society, and, and that's the only way we can move forward, really. Yeah. What skill or habit has helped you the most in your career or personal life? Is there one you'd like to improve moving forward? I guess the thing that helps me on a on a day-to-day -day basis is waking up in the morning and trying to think of one thing that I'm that I'm grateful for and doing the same thing before I before I go to sleep as well. Because there'll be days when I have really big highs and something great has happened working on a really good project. And there'll be days when I just when I just feel a little bit I get I get I get climate anxiety. I don't just climate anxiety, but I'm, but sometimes things don't happen quite as much as quite as well as you like and just keep that perspective of you know things have gone really great today or things haven't been so great today but keeping grounded and just thinking you know these are the things i've got in my life that i should be really grateful for and waking up with that and going to remember that i feel keeps me grounded no matter where my kind of mood takes me yeah in between during the day yeah it's unfortunate how difficult just thinking of one thing in the morning and one thing in the evening can be i've been trying to do the same I tell you what else I find really difficult. I think I think this this, this might may a lot of people may feel this way, is that is is lowering our personal carbon footprint and doing things individually and trying to do the right things individually, but also trying to improve the quality of life for our families as well, and just trying to keep that balance. I find yeah. that is that is one of the things I struggle with on a, on, a, on a daily basis, trying to improve improve my family's lifestyle because I've got, I've got a son, I've got a wife, yeah. but also trying to do that within the boundaries of the planet. And I think a lot of people will be grappling with that. And that's a really big existential issue that I think a lot of us have to, have to deal with. Absolutely. What are you most curious about right now? If you had a month to research and learn more about any topic, what would it be? Mm. I'm actually doing a sustainability practitioner course now, which is really interesting and taking me into the real science. I'm, I'm learning a lot more about the science of cool. the planet and sustainability. You know, one of the things I'd love to do. So yesterday I went on a field trip with my son and we went to one of these lakes I was just telling you about. And our tour guide was this marine biologist. And he was talking about all the, the, the wildlife and nature at these lakes. And I mean, I was pushing past these kids to look through his, to, through his telescope and, and, and his binoculars, right? Because it was so, I was so interested, so cool. And, and if, if, I could, if I could turn the clock back, I don't like living, living with regrets. I don't believe in regrets. I believe we can, that we should move forward and try and, and, uh, and uh, try and work with the best, the best that we have. But if I, could, if I could turn the clock back and change anything, I would probably try and study the, the natural sciences more. I'd have, I'd have gone to university and studied marine biology and natural sciences and done a job like that because this guy looked like he really, really loved his job. And, and uh, yeah, that'd be something I'd, I'd love to take some time out to really get into the weeds of that and learn, learn the real science, science aspect. If you could wave a magic wand and have one action or habit widely adopted through the sports community, 
what would that be? And oh, I know that's wow. tough across um, leagues, teams, individuals, but. Okay. What I would do is, is that every four years, these organizations tend to publish a strategic uh, roadmap for the next three or four years. I'd wave a magic wand to say that in every single one of these, these strategic roadmaps or these strategic plans, the environment is one of the core, one of the core pillars of that. Not, 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 a, not a standalone sustainability strategy yeah. report that within your whole kind of organizational strategy, the environment is going to be a conversation for everything else you do. Critical in all the it's commercial, fans, every, everything you do to do with planning, the environment is, is that, that is scrutinized from an environmental point of view. And the stakeholders that can't talk like the environment, they will be, they will be represented in some, in some form. Final question. Impact begins with. Impact begins with, with passion and pragmatism. Passion Combined. and pragmatism. I like it. Well, Matthew, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Like I said, I've been getting so much, uh, out of your writing and podcasts over the years, uh, as I'm trying to connect the dots myself and it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure coming on Jeremy. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. Hey, this is Jeremy again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Our Impact. I hope you found this conversation useful and interesting. If you have any feedback about this episode, suggestions for future guests or topics, please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time.